Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. At this prayer that Daniel makes on behalf of his people, the nation of Israel, in a very uh, distressful and uh, chaotic time that he was in. Um, and then... ...selves... Uh, when we get into our group time, there's there's one question. I didn't put it on this on this uh, sheet, but I, I do ask that you guys will just kind of discuss among yourself what was the big takeaway for you from this message, or the the one thing that stuck out for you uh, regarding this. So keep that in mind as you're listening, and then, like I said, we'll spend just a little bit of time ourselves praying, uh, hopefully uh, emulating Daniel in this chapter for the events that are going on in our world and in Israel in particular. Um, one last thing before we get into it. Uh, some of you guys, I don't know who all gets it, but just to uh, make sure it's everybody that wants to get it, it's available to them. I send out a text message every week, just reminding everybody, hey, we're meeting. If something happens and we can't meet, like, it's a way for me to tell you that. Or you know, sometimes we'll have kind of special events and things like that. It's a way for me to remind you of that. And if you want to get that text update, uh, text CCEA devoted, all one word, to 59769. But uh, you can come see me after. I'll help you set it up. It's it's really easy to do. And it's not one of those group texts where, like, people are just able to text and it's this chain and your phone's just going crazy at work all day. I know those are, like, the most annoying thing in the world. You know, you could block those, by the way, you could in your iPhone setting. Um, <laughs> this, this you can't respond to. It's just I'm the only one that can send it out. And it's, you know, for getting important messages out. But I would highly recommend that you would do that. Also, um, we'll be here next Tuesday. We'll look at the kind of the third part in our study of the spirit-filled home. We'll look at... Uh, what um, specifically servants and their masters and the application for us would be employees and bosses. Um, we'll look at that. And then the following week we have, uh, Tuesday is actually on Halloween. So obviously that night we'll be doing the Hallelujah Fest and whatnot. And so we won't be meeting uh, for Devoted for that. But uh, yeah, so we have some some fun stuff coming up. I'm excited for the holiday season. We'll plan some great uh, activities uh, for the group. Uh, so, yeah, so let's get to the word. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dive right into it. Father, we do pray. Uh, we pray for the things happening in this world. Lord, uh, we take great comfort knowing that you're a good God and that you've sovereignly ordained these things, Lord, that uh, all things that happen are happening according to the counsel of your own will, Lord, and that you have a purpose for everything. And, and you want to use everything to bring people closer to your son and uh, in a redemptive way, Lord. And we trust that that's how you're going to use this. I pray that you would use it in our lives to bring us closer to you. And I pray that in this message that we're studying, this prayer of Daniel, that you'll show us each individually how that could be true for each one of us, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us tonight. We need your word. We need your wisdom, Lord. We need your instruction. This world is chaotic, and it is just more and more seems contrary to your way, Lord. And we don't want to get caught up in that. We want to live a life that honors you and that pleases you and, and that affects your kingdom, Lord. So we need your word. We need your instruction. And we ask that you'd speak to us tonight, Lord. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there was this little boy, and he was maybe seven, eight years old, and for the first time in his life, he was eating dinner at his friend's house. Every other time he ate dinner, it had been with his parents, and he kind of had the customary way that they would set the table, the, the food that his mother would had cooked, and the way that his dad would pray and things like that. But he's at his friend's house, and he's going to eat there, and he notices that the mom there cooks a little different that they set the table a little different. And then he was really shocked because when they sat down to eat, everybody just started eating. They just kind of dug in. And he was sitting there kind of perplexed, just like wouldn't touch his plate. And the, the parents of, of, of his friend kind of caught on and they're looking at him like, is everything okay? 
And he says, you guys don't pray for your food? At my house, we, we pray for the food. And the dad goes, uh, no, we, we, we don't do that here. And, and the little boy goes, wow, you guys are like my dog. He just dives right in too. You know, uh, and the parents obviously were a little embarrassed, but that's true. If you think about it, prayer is really what separates us from the beasts, that what separates us from the animal world, what separates us from the Gentiles, from the heathen, what, what separates us from the backslidden Christians even, is the fact that we're in communion with the Almighty, that we get to talk to the ruler of the universe. And what a privilege that is, that we get to go to the one who made us, the one who's uh, created the world and sustaining it, the one who's sovereign over everything, and, and talk to him and let him know what's going on with us and, and that he wants to hear from us and he wants to speak back to us. And uh, just what a privilege that is uh, that, that we need to pray. And that's what we're going to get at tonight is uh, we're going to see from Daniel that he, that's what made him different than all the people, all the wise men in Babylon was Daniel was a guy who prayed. Daniel was a guy who went to the Lord for wisdom and guidance. Now, before we get into this and read the passage, I suppose I should give a little bit of a background of where we're at uh, in Israel's history and things like that. Remember, Israel was formed by God out of one man and his wife, Abram and Sarai. Before that, there, there was no Israel. There was no Jewish people. Abram was a pagan living in Ur the Chaldees. He was worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and like everybody else. And God spoke to him and said, hey, get up, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to give you. And he obeyed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. And then out of Abraham, he started building this, this country. He had Isaac and then Jacob and then the sons of Jacob became the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. And they were stuck in bondage in Egypt and the Lord delivered them out of Egypt and, 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 and brought them through the wilderness and into this land. And they had this land and they had this kingdom, right, that was united, and it lasted a couple hundred years. And then finally, after the reign of King Solomon, that kingdom became divided. There became the 10 northern tribes to the north became Israel or Ephraim. And then the southern tribes became Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was and whatnot. And that happened in about 930 BC. In 733 BC, God used the Assyrians to come and wipe out the northern tribes. You see, both the northern and the southern tribes struggled. They struggled to be faithful to the Lord. They would go off and they would worship other gods. They'd commit apostasy and, and, and it grieved God. And God had said, when you do that, I'm going to bring in other people to come and take you captive. And you're going to have to go to a land that you don't like. And God used the Assyrians to punish the northern tribes of Israel in 733 BC in that way. And those northern tribes, they never really came back. They were taken captive and, and that was it. We, there was no more Israel uh, proper, so to speak, after that time. Now you would think that Judah, after seeing what happened to her sister, it would cause her to repent, to say, wow, look, we don't want that to happen to us. They were com continually surrounded by that same group, the Assyrians, and God kept delivering them and giving them more and more chances to repent that they would have said, hey, it's time to get right. It's time to put away the idolatry and, and, and worship the Lord. But they didn't. They continually gave themselves over to idols as well. And so God finally is going to use this newly crowned king, Nebuchadnezzar, in 605 BC to start taking Israel captive into Babylon. I'm sorry, taking Judah captive into Babylon. And there's three successive deportations one in 605 BC, another in 596 BC, and another in 586 BC. Finally, in 586 BC, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. These horrible atrocities are going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, you could read about it in Lamentations. It was a horrible time, right? But in that first deportation, they took the, big, the brightest of the Jewish youths. They took these four boys named Daniel, Ananias, Mishael, and Azariah, captive to Babylon. And the idea was, was they were going to propagandize them. They were going to literally indoctrinate them for three years into everything Babylonian. They were going to make them think like a Babylonian. They're going to make them worship the pagan gods of Babylon. 
and all of that so that when the other people from Judah were taken captive, they could kind of be the leaders and help get them on track with the Babylonian way of life. But it didn't really work like that because these four Jewish boys had purposed in their heart that they wouldn't be defiled by the king, his food, and his wine. And they were going to remain faithful to Yahweh over and over. And God uses this time, these four Jewish boys, and over a period of 70 years, the whole Babylonian kingdom, to prove that the wisdom from above trumps the wisdom from this world. He was going to continually put them in these precarious situations where they're going to be tested. Are they going to rely on the God's wisdom? Are they going to rely on the word of God? Or are they going to succumb to worldly thinking and paganism and things like that? And these four boys, over and over again, in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, they, they remain steadfast to the Lord, right? Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are before the image? They wouldn't bow. They were the only three standing. And so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But God vindicated that one like the Son of Man was in the furnace dancing with them. And, you know, they were, they were delivered from the fire. Daniel was literally thrown into the lion's den because he didn't want to change his prayer life. Right? So over and over again, God is showing himself strong on their behalf. And this lasts the whole period of 70 years. And finally, the Medo-Persians are going to come in and take control of that area. And Daniel is still alive. In the book of Daniel at chapter 7, there's kind of a turn. The first six chapters are historical narrative. They're telling the story of these four youths in Babylon. In chapters 7 through 12, though, we have a look kind of at uh, Daniel's kind of prayer journal, so to speak. We're, we're, we're seeing these stories, these prophetic visions that God is giving Daniel during those 70 years, and they're recorded. And it's interesting to me that right in the middle of these visions that are recorded is this prayer of Daniel's, right? And that tells me that prayer is important, right? We aren't just to think of prophecy as these things that are going to happen in the future that God's talking about. No, God's telling us what's happening in the future so that we could pray about it and we could be a part of it and, and, and we could be faithful to the Lord with it and in it. And so I pray that today, as we look at this, we're going to have that same heart and it's going to prepare us to be faithful during these times that we're facing. But let's go ahead, let's look at the text and then uh, we'll go through and kind of break it down. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuzarius, of Median uh, descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet of the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 77s. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and, his, uh, and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, to our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through the servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has tr transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words 
which he had spoken against us and against the rulers, our rulers, who ruled us according, or ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept this calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, uh, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, have become a reproach to all those around us. So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So I've entitled this message, uh, A Praying for a Nation, because that's essentially what Daniel is doing. He is in a tough spot, right? He's been away from his homeland. Uh, His people are scattered. The temple is gone. The priesthood is gone. The sacrifices are gone. The worship of Yahweh is gone. He's in Babylon. The Babylonian kingdom has come to and passed, and now he's under this Medo-Persian king named Cyrus or Darius. And, and, and he's kind of freaking out, right? And so uh, the Lord prompts him to seek the Lord and to start praying. I think when we look at our world today, there's no shortage of things that should prompt us to pray. Right now, Israel's at, at war with Hamas. Our president is on his way over there. Uh, just today, uh, the Palestinian rebels have surrounded uh, our embassy in Lebanon and are rioting and threatening to take it. Uh, Hamas has ex- blown up one of its own hospitals and is blaming it on Israel. The nations that Biden has flown over to talk to their leaders have counseled on him. Um, We don't have a speaker of the house in our government. Um, You know, there's, you just, the list could go on and on and on of things that could cause us to worry, or they could be reasons to seek the Lord in his word and pray. I pray that we would do the latter and hopefully we'll learn how to do that tonight. You know, the great Puritan preacher, John Owen, is famous for saying a lot of things. He has a lot of kind of one-liners or quotes, but one of these quotes that he's famous for is this, what a man is in secret on his knees before God, that he is in nothing more. Once again, what a man is in secret on his knees before God, that he is in nothing more. In other words, a man or a woman can be defined by their secret prayer life. How we pray when no one is looking is really the definition of who we are as a person. Now, I know that this statement could be extremely convicting. I've been convicted over it many times over the past couple of months as I think about it. But if this statement is true, which I believe it is, we could see why Daniel was such a great man of God. Daniel was able to do such great things for the Lord and for the Lord's people, because he enjoyed such a disciplined and vibrant prayer life. Can I remind you that this is the same Daniel that at 80 years old would be rather thrown, fed alive to lions than have his prayer life interrupted for one month. It wasn't like you could never pray again. It wasn't like you can't pray at all. 
You just, you can't pray the way that you're praying for one month. And Daniel said, no, that's not acceptable. I'm not going to change my prayer habit. I would rather be fed to lions. Now, there's plenty of ways that I think would be horrible to die. But at the top of that list, I think being fed alive to lions is probably right about there. But to Daniel, having his relationship with the Lord altered was worse than that. Now, I doubt any of us here share that same conviction when it comes to our prayer lives. But then again, I doubt any of us have experienced prayer and communion with God to the degree that Daniel has. There's been many times in my Christian walk where I've had this, this burden, this idea that I need to improve my prayer life, that, that I don't pray the way that I should, that I don't pray as much as I should, that I, I want to pray better. And I've done various things trying to, to fix that. I bought dozens of books on prayer. I've read maybe five books on prayer. Some of them were helpful, some of them weren't. But what I found was the most helpful in impacting my prayer life was emulating people that were great prayer warriors, you know, getting around people that really knew how to pray and copying them. And that's especially true of the great people of prayer in the Bible, right? We could look in the pages of scripture and there's some wonderful examples of people that knew how to pray. We could look at uh, Jesus, Right? Remember the disciples, they recognized that there was something about Jesus, his spirituality, the way that he prayed that set him apart from everybody else. And that's why they came to him and said, hey, teach us to pray the way that you pray. Right? And he taught them a model prayer that they could pray every day in the Lord's Prayer. Or we could look at John 17 in his high priestly prayer. When the night that he's going to be betrayed, the night you would think he wanted to be ministered to, the night that you would think he would want to be prayed for, He's ministering to his disciples. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for me and you, if you really look at it in chapter 17, verse 20. And we could look at that and see, hey, that is just an awesome prayer. Here's Jesus praying to the Father before going to the cross on our behalf. It's kind of a preview of the ministry that he has now, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. After Jesus, we could look at the Apostle Paul, right? There's some great, great prayers of the apostle found in the pages of some of his epistles. We're studying the book of Ephesians in chapter one and chapter three. There's these great prayers of petition on behalf of that church. Or you could look at Philippians or Colossians. This great theologian that I love named D.A. Carson has a book that's really helpful. It's called Praying with Paul. Another title is a call to spiritual reformation where he takes the prayers of Paul in the Bible and shows us how we could apply them to our life. Or we could go to the Old Testament and we could look at Psalm 51, the Psalm of David, the penitent Psalm of him praying for forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. This prayer of Daniel is marvelous in many ways. Out of all these prayers, I think one of the prayers that I've learned the most from is the prayer recorded by Daniel here in Daniel chapter 9. It really is because it has all the essential elements of prayer. In this prayer, we see Daniel pray in all the different ways that we should be praying. There's adoration, there's confession, there's intercession, there's a, a recalling of God's past covenant faithfulness, and there's also petition. So, so we could look at this and say, this could be a model prayer for us. We could take these elements of prayer and apply them to our prayer lives in these areas that are happening around us today. Not only that, it's applicable in another way, right? Because here he's praying for a nation. He's praying for Israel. Israel's been scattered. They're not experiencing the fullness of God's covenant blessings and all of that like they should be. And Daniel's burdened, and he's praying for the nation. So we can say, hey, this is a model of how we could pray for our nation, how we should be praying for America, how we could be praying for Israel right now as well, too, because this is a prayer for Israel. But we also have to remember that Israel was a little different than America. In America, we have this thing called the separation of church and state, right? Where, where the church is its own thing and the state, the government is its own thing. Well, that's not the way it was in Israel, right? It was a theocracy. It, it, it was a state, but it was also a, a spiritual entity, right? So this prayer also becomes a model for praying for 
a wayward spiritual people. We could apply this to the church today. You could apply it to specific churches that are going astray and pray this for them. You could apply it to the family unit. You could apply it to, you know, your, your workplace. You could apply it just to, to any basic group of people that there is imaginable. You could take this prayer and make an application to that. It is extremely helpful in that regard. In the first couple verses, we get the setting or the backdrop to Daniel's prayer. <laughs> look, at verse, look at verses one and two with me. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuzarius, of Medan descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, there's some scholarly debate about who this Darius is historically. I tend to lean towards he's Cyrus, Cyrus, the leader of this new Medo-Persian empire that has taken over for the Babylonian empire. Right, The same Cyrus or Darius who's going to allow the children of Israel to come back and start rebuilding the temple in a couple of years after this. And Daniel, he's uh, had been taken, probably as a teenager, probably around the 15, age of 15, from Judah to Babylon. I had mentioned that, right? And, and he had outlasted the entire Babylonian uh, empire. Uh, he had been there for 70 years. And, you know, one morning he decides, I'm going to, have my quiet time. I'm going to go and get before the Lord, right? And he starts seeking the Lord. In the Bible, he's got his cup of coffee there, and he's praying, you know, he's having his quiet time. And while he's reading the Bible, he receives this revelation. He's told something from God about the future. And this is interesting to me, because so far, uh, throughout the book of Daniel, we see him getting revelation in many different ways. We see him getting revelation from God in visions and dreams and things like that. But this time it's different. This time he's in the Bible. He's in God's word and God is speaking to him through his word. Now I've received revelation through visions and dreams. That's true. God has told me that I was going to lose my arm and exactly how I was going to lose it in a vision. And it happened exactly the way that it happened. So, so he still does that but it's very, very rare. 99.999% of the time that God speaks to me, that he tells me things, it's through his word. It's through the Bible. You know, if you want to hear from God, if you want to get instruction from God, we need to get into our Bibles. We need to be reading his word. You know, every now and then when I'm out doing evangelism on the streets, I'll use this illustration. I'll tell somebody, I was like, hey, imagine if you know, life is really hard. You know, it's confusing. Imagine if at any time you could pick up this cell phone and there was an app that you could open and you could talk to God. You could ask God any questions you want. You could tell God all the problems you're having. And you could tell God all the ways that you need help. And then he would respond and he would give you information that would help you in those areas. How often do you think you would use that app? And people are like, I would be using that all the time. Like, I would use it every day. And I'm like, well, that's essentially what he's given us in the Bible. Right? We could open the Bible and we could read the Bible whenever we want. And we could receive wisdom for the Lord to help us in the things that we are going through. But what do we do with it? We just neglect it. Oh, maybe tomorrow, some other day. Did you know that God speaks audibly today? He really does. I've heard him speak audibly. In fact, I could tell you a surefire way, a surefire method that you could use to hear God speak audibly to you whenever you want to. Now, before you guys pick up rocks to start throwing at me, you know, listen up. All you have to do if you want to hear God speak audibly to you is pick up this book and read it out loud. And God will be speaking audibly to you. This is the very word of the Lord. Yeah, get the audio Bible. <laughs> you know, that'll be the Lord speaking out loud to you. So Daniel's in his body, in his Bible, 
And we even know where he's at in his Bible during this uh, morning quiet time. We know that he's in the book of Jeremiah. Look at uh, verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet at the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Right, so he's, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And I can tell you exactly what chapters of the book of Jeremiah he was reading, right? Because it has to do with the 70 years of captivity. He was in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, which say this, this whole land will be a desolation and a whore, and the nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So he probably started around chapter 25 and was going through probably chapter 30 or so because chapter 29 verses 10 through 14 say this, for thus saith the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and then you will pray to me, and then I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. I love this. At the end of chapter 8, Daniel, he had seen these visions about the future of Israel, and they freaked him out. They, they, They really did. You know, and he had seen things about the, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, the horrors that the Antichrist is going to bring. Uh, look at the end of chapter 8, verse 27. And this is, this is the effect it had on Daniel. It says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up and carried on the king's business, but I was astonished at the visions, and there was none to explain it. So he's freaked out. And what does he do? He goes to the Lord. He gets in the word. He starts praying. This isn't that exactly what Isaiah did in the year that King Uzziah died, right? Uzziah was one of the few good kings there were, mostly. He died this tragic death of leprosy, and, and there was great uncertainty for Israel. For 50 years, they had had Uzziah, and things had been fairly good. But the kings before Uzziah had been really bad, and so they didn't know what was going to happen. And so what did Isaiah do? He went to the temple. He sought the Lord, and he went there, and that's when he saw the the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fill on the temple and he got his call into ministry. And Daniel's doing that same thing. He's seeking the Lord in this time of distress. And I've often found that this is the case in my life, that if I will seek the Lord in the morning, if I will go to him in the beginning of the day, he's going to give me exactly what I need to hear for that day. Daniel is stressed out. He doesn't know what the future has in store. And so he goes to the Lord, and the Lord starts telling him, hey, it's 70 years in captivity. It's almost over. It's almost time to go back. Remember when Jesus got baptized? He came out of the water. God spoke audibly from heaven. Then it says that the Spirit of the Lord drove him into the wilderness, and he was tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Right? And it, we got a kind of a glimpse of what that temptation was, right? We were shown three specific temptations that the devil brought to Jesus. And Jesus fought each temptation with what? With the scriptures. It is written. It is written. It is written. And all three times he quotes Deuteronomy. Now, I used to think that if I'm going to have success in that area of spiritual warfare, I, I really need to know the law, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. Right? And then I started reading the book of Deuteronomy, and I started to realize that all three of those verses are within a couple chapters of each other. And I started thinking, you know, it's more likely that that's just where Jesus was in his quiet time that morning. Those were the passages that Jesus was meditating on that day when the devil came and attacked him. 
You see, God was giving Jesus exactly what he was going to need that day for the attacks that he was going to face. You see, our God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what we're about to step into each and every day. Right now, one of the big challenges that the IDF is having is Hamas is hiding in underground tunnels, right? They don't know when they go and try to take this underground area, what's going to happen at each turn because they don't know where these tunnels go. They have no idea what they're walking into, right? But it's not like that for us and God. God knows exactly what we're walking into each and every day. And he wants to prepare us for that. If we'll seek him in the morning and seek his word and seek him in prayer, he's going to prepare us for exactly what we have to go through so that we could be successful for him. Have any of you guys had that experience? Right, where you're walking into some situation and there's this temptation in front of you and it was like, man, I was just reading about that. I was just praying about that. I was just thinking about that. And you're encouraged and you're like, you know what? I could say no. You know, God, God already gave me instruction for that. I guarantee you if we get in his word in the morning, we'll start seeing that more and more. So Daniel comes to this realization through the prophet Jeremiah that God was punishing his people for their unfaithfulness and idolatry by sending them captive to Babylon. By the way, that's exactly what God said he would do in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if they were unfaithful. But Daniel also realizes that when he was taken at the age of 15, and now he's in his mid-80s, that that 70 years is almost up. It's almost time to go back. It's almost time for God to move and restore the nation of Israel. So what does Daniel do? He starts packing his suitcase. No, he starts praying. He gets on his knees and he prays for the nation. He prays that these things that he's seeing in the Bible, that the things that the book of Jeremiah is saying, that they'll come to pass. You see, we need to let the word of God be the prayer, the basis for our prayer life. We need to let the word of God be the basis of our prayer life. We need to pray the Bible is the reality. You know, Jesus says a whole bunch of things about prayer in the Bible. There's all kinds of encouragements to pray in the New Testament. One of the great verses on prayer is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We just studied this with Pastor Bob. It says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Well, how do we know that we're praying according to God's will? Well, by praying to what he has revealed in his word, right? Daniel realizes the Lord's will is to restore his people and to bring them back into the land. And so he starts praying that God would do just that. The easiest way that we're going to know what the will of the Lord is and what to be praying is to be in the Bible. And we'll start seeing God's heart, having God's will and praying according to that. Now, you might be thinking, if God said he's going to do that, that after 70 years, he's going to return the people anyways, why do we need to pray for it? You know, he's going to do it. He has to honor his word. Why does he need me to pray for that? Yeah, I would say God is sovereign. The psalmist says our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. However, when God works, he has ordinary means that he works through. And one of those is prayer. I've seen over and over where God is going to do something. He, 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 he's, he's planning to, to move and to do something. And one of the means that he's going to use to accomplish that is he's going to burden people to pray. He's going to burden hearts for the same thing that burdens him so that people would be praying that he would do it. He's going to start aligning hearts with his hearts so that people will have his heart and that they could be used by him in what he wants to do. It's not that God needs our prayers. No, he, he, he doesn't need our prayers. There was nobody praying when God spoke the entire universe into existence. God could do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but he delights in our prayers because it draws us closer to him and allows us to be a part of what he is doing. He wants us to be a part. He wants us to be his hands and his feet. It's kind of like the, the parent, right? And their kids ask, hey, could I help wash the car or could I help cook dinner? 
right? The parent doesn't need the five-year-old's help. Actually, the five-year-old's probably going to make the job harder, right? But the parent delights in it because they get to see the joy that the child gets in being a part of what the parent is doing, right? They, 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 they get to, you know, be with the, the dad, right? Well, God looks at us and thinks the same way. Often I'm asked if our prayers could change God's will. <clears throat> that if we pray something, is it going to change what God is going to do? And my response would be, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to change God's will? Do you have perfect wisdom? Do you know the end from the beginning? Do you have perfect knowledge like the Lord does? What makes you think that your will or your idea is any better than his? You see, we don't pray to get our will done in heaven. We pray to get heaven's will in our hearts so we could do heaven's will here. People say, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? I respond, if God isn't sovereign, why should you pray? Right? If he's not able to actually accomplish what you're asking him to do, you're wasting your time asking him to do anything. But God's sovereignty should never be an excuse not to pray. We should never take the attitude, oh, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. You see, that's fatalism, and that's absolutely deadly to our faith. You see, God reveals his will, and he invites us to pray and participate in his will and workings. But it doesn't exclude it. It brings our participation. Think about the passage before us. God made a promise through the prophet Jeremiah, I'll bring my people back after 70 years. Jeremiah made the prophecy, 70 years and the Lord will restore his people to their land. Daniel read it and Daniel started to pray. And then Cyrus in his time gave the decree allowing the people to return. See, God could have just done that on his own, but he allowed all these people to be a part of his doing and to participate in his sovereignty. So Daniel reads that God's going to restore his people and it drives him to pray. But before he prays, he prepares himself to pray. Look at verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He, he, he gets his heart ready. Fasting is withholding food for a time to prioritize something else like prayer. Daniel made the Lord his priority. Now, we got to think fasting was a little bit different in that day because it took them a lot longer to get their food than it takes us. They couldn't drive through the, you know, the in and out drive through like we can and have food in 30 minutes or the, you know, Carl's Jr. drive through and have food in five minutes or, you know, whatever, right? It, it took them a lot longer to prepare their food. So skipping out on that process gave them a whole lot more time for seeking the Lord. For us, a more appropriate fast might be, hey, I'm going to skip out on Netflix or on TV or on social media. And any time that I would spend doing that, I'm going to seek the Lord. He put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was usually a, a rough material from a skin and it would irritate the skin, right? It would, it would be from an animal skin. And, and it symbolized the fact that your soul was in turmoil, that you were uncomfortable in your spirit. And finally, ashes were put on the head, symbolizing mourning. And see, the application for us is that we need to prepare ourselves to pray. We need to get our heart right to commune with the Lord Almighty. The psalmist says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, he doesn't listen to our prayers. Right? We need to get right with the Lord so that we could commune with the Lord. Otherwise, we're just offering up these kind of rote prayers. We're just going through the motions. And Jesus tells us that God's not honored by that. You know, the writer of Hebrews says this about prayer. Hebrews 4.16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, right? The, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, the King James says, but we'll never have the boldness that the writer at the Hebrews is speaking of until we empty ourselves and realize that we have nothing but God's grace, right? We, we have to realize that the whole basis that we're able to come to the Lord is God's grace and not our works. And that's how we're in Christ. And we're standing before the Father in Christ, right? And so we could be as bold as Christ would be praying to his Father. 
So we need to get our heart right to be with God. Could you imagine if you were going out, you're having lunch with somebody, maybe you're going out on a date and you're all excited about it. And then you get there and that person's just kind of going through the motions. They're like on their phone the whole time. You know, you're talking to them and they're like just scrolling. And yeah, it's it just like, that would be really frustrating, right? They're like, why are you even here? Right? Well, I think sometimes that's the way that the Lord thinks about us when we're coming to him, right? And we're not aligning our hearts with his. We're not seeking his will. We're not praying his word. We're kind of just going through the motions. Now in verses 4 through 19, we're going to have the content of the prayer. I'm going to point out some of the aspects of Daniel's prayer that we can and should emulate. In verse 4, Daniel begins with adoration. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. He doesn't just go and start telling God what to do. No, he begins with worshiping the Lord. He, he delights in being with God more than he delights in what God could do for him. You know, God isn't this genie in the bottle to Daniel, right? Uh, he, he, he truly is showing, I love the Lord. I love spending time with the Lord. And beginning our prayers this way, it, uh, it has another added benefit. It reminds us who we're talking to. It reminds us that we're talking to the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love, right? And, and, and that's going to affect the way that we pray. That's going to affect the boldness that we have before him. Now, in verses 5 through 14, we're going to get into the intercession and confession of the prayer. Now, it's interesting to me when we look at this, that the bulk of this prayer of Daniel is, is confession. I'd be willing to bet that if we would line up our prayers, say we took a piece of paper, folded it in half, and on one side wrote down our confession, and on the other side wrote down our petitions, one side would be longer. It'd probably be the side of the petition. Not so with Daniel, right? With Daniel, he saw that first and foremost, he needed forgiveness for his sins. Besides, forgiveness is the sins, of sins is the greatest thing that we could ask for, for ourselves and for other people. There's no greater thing we could ask of the Lord than that our sins and other sins would be forgiven. Remember the four guys that came to Jesus, bringing their friend on the, uh, the little pallet because the friend was paralyzed and couldn't get to Jesus, and they brought him down through the, the roof of the house. And Jesus looked at them and he says, your, your sins are forgiven you, right? And they're all questioning, wow, how could this guy say he forgives sins? And he says, you know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and picked up his bed and went home. You see, but Jesus started with the forgiveness of the sins because that was the greater reward. Having your sins forgiven is a far greater work than having your health restored. It's also interesting to me the way that Daniel describes his nation's sin. But he doesn't make excuses for it like we do. He doesn't kind of soften the blow. He doesn't try to call it something else. He doesn't say, hey, well, you know, we made a little boo-boo or, you know, we had this problem or, you know, this thing just happened to happen to us. No, he, he was blunt about it. Yeah, can you imagine how pathetic we look to the angels that are watching us when we try to make excuses to our sins before God, right? I mean, we must look pretty pathetic, right? But look at the words Daniel says. He says, I, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed and said, alas, my God, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly and rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we haven't listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings, the princes, our fathers, and the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. 
to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all in, in Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, all the countries which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Wow, he's not mixing words there. There's no sugarcoating it. They had sinned. They had rebelled against the Lord. It's also interesting to me to look at the pronouns that Daniel uses. 20 times he uses the first person plural pronouns, we, us, and ours in this prayer. Now, part of that is true because God is going to judge not just individuals, but he's going to judge people groups or nations. God's going to judge nations and and the sins of the nations he's going to hold us in some way accountable for. We're all affected by the sins of the people around us. Remember the children of Israel, they're going into the promised land. In the first battle of Jericho, God says, devote everything to destruction. But one guy, Achan, decides, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take these things for myself. And he hides them in his tent. And then the very next battle, They didn't have the same power. They didn't have the same victory. In fact, 36 men of Israel died because of Achan's sin, right? In a very real sense, we are experiencing the sin and the guilt and the punishment for that sin of the people around us. And Daniel includes himself in that. But was Daniel the one committing these sins? Now, I've studied this book very hard, and I've studied the historical sections of the Bible, and I can't find anywhere where Daniel is committing these sins that he is talking about. You know, uh, now I'm not saying he's perfect. He's not Jesus. However, he was probably the most righteous person on the planet at this time. But we, we haven't seen him committing these sins. You see, but Daniel wasn't guilty of the sins, but he realized that he bore the burden of the sins of his people. This really is a beautiful thing. It's actually him being a type of Christ here. And and, and we have the same ability too. We have the same opportunity to do what Daniel is doing with the sins of the people around us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably one of the best gospel passages in the Bible, says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus hadn't committed any sins but he bore the sins of the people. Right? We have that same opportunity. Now, I hope and pray that no one here has had an abortion, or, right? But we can, you know, bear the sins with the people that have and walk with them through that and help them to, to get through the, what they're going through. We can identify with them and walk through this with them. That's actually what Paul says fulfills the law of Christ. Galatians 6 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's another reason that Daniel's confession here is so encouraging to me. Remember when the, the temple was being dedicated? Remember, David wanted to build a temple. God said, No, you're a man of bloodshed. You're not going to do it, but your son's going to do it. He had gotten everything ready. Solomon had built the temple, and then there was the dedication. And Solomon, I mean, it's a huge day. It's a huge celebration for Israel. The temple's been built. And Solomon is praying and, 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 and dedicating this temple before the Lord. And he says this in 1 Kings 8.33. He says, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, Lean here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Wow. What I find interesting is there's no evidence that the people ever confessed and repented of their sins. Here. Look at verse 13. Daniel says this, As it is written in the law of Moses, All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. We we, we haven't cried out. We haven't repented. But Daniel did. 
for his people, and it's going to move God to restore his people. Now, I'm not saying that if one of us prays, God's going to do the same thing today. That if one of us gets on our knees before the nation, God's going to be obligated to heal our land and grant revival. But we do see that even one prayer on behalf of the nation is enough to move God. Maybe yours or my confession and repentance would be the prayer that would be enough to move God to restore our land or to restore Israel, to fix the problems in the Middle East. Billy Graham said this, to get the nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. Right? So we need to be praying. We need to be asking for forgiveness for our sins, for our nation's sins, for Israel's sins. That's the greatest thing that we could experience. That's the greatest thing that Israel could experience is forgiveness of their sins and restoration to their Lord. It's also interesting to me that Daniel here is praying for something that he won't get to experience. He's in his mid-80s. He's not going back to Jerusalem, but he's burdened for the future generations that are going to experience this blessing. You know, we need to be praying beyond ourselves. We should be praying for the peace of the Middle East. Right? That's not really going to have much effect on us, but it's having an effect on God's people who are part of our body in the Middle East. Right? We need to be praying for that. Finally, after all this confessing, Daniel's going to make his plea or petition to God in verses 15 through 19. What's interesting to me is the basis of his petition. It's nothing to do with him, his goodness, the goodness of the people. And it has everything to do with God's covenant. Look at verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. Daniel reminds the Lord that he had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he would make them a people. He would deliver them from bondage to Egypt and give them a land. And Daniel bases his petition for God to restore these people on the base of his covenantal faithfulness, not Israel's worthiness. He says, hey, you made a promise to our fathers that you would make us a people, that you'd make us a land, that you would make us great. You need to be faithful to that. This should always be the basis of our petitions. We have no goodness in us, no worthiness of our own to receive anything but judgment from God. However, God is full of goodness and faithfulness, and that's what we should appeal to. Remember Jesus when he institutes the Lord's Supper, right? He, he makes a covenant. It says this in Matthew 26, while they were still eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. When they had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, we could always come to Jesus and we could always say, forgive me, Jesus, on the basis of your covenant, the covenant of your blood that you made for the forgiveness of my sins. It's an everlasting covenant. You made it. Therefore, I have all the boldness in the world to ask for forgiveness. We also see in these verses that Daniel's concerned with God's glory. He's concerned with God's reputation. He doesn't want the surrounding nations to think God's weak, that Yahweh's not able to be good to his people. He doesn't want them to look and say, hey, there once stood a temple there, but that God wasn't strong enough to defend it. What kind of God must have lived in that temple? Look at verses 16 and 17. Oh Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to all his supplications. And for your sake, O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Right? He says, hey, you know, for your own sake, so that for your own glory, so people will praise you, move God. Daniel says, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. This kind of reminds me of 
the Aaronic blessing, right? That blessing that Pastor Bob prays over us every Wednesday night. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Here's the next words. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. You see, God had given Aaron this blessing to say over the nation of Israel as their high priest to literally invoke the presence of the Lord on the people. When Aaron would do that, it would literally put God's presence with the people of Israel. I love that. You know why? Because we have a high priest who's pronounced a blessing upon us as well. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has declared us blessed. In the Beatitudes, over and over again, Jesus has has called us blessed. Now, I think we look at the Beatitudes the wrong way. We look at it and say, hey, if I am poor in spirit, I'll be blessed. If I mourn, I'll be blessed. If I'm meek, I'll be blessed. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll be blessed. If I'm a peacemaker, I'll be blessed. But that's not what it is at all. Jesus says, you are blessed because I have declared you blessed. I'm your high priest and I have put my presence upon you and you are blessed. And the more that you walk in that blessing, you will start to realize you are poor in spirit. You will then mourn for the condition of the world. It'll make you a meek person. It'll make you somebody that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It'll make you somebody that is a peacemaker and so on. But Daniel starts interceding for the people. He starts praying that God would move on their behalf. Intercession needs to be a part of our Christian lives. The New Testament commands it, right? Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. Right, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about spiritual warfare and all the different pieces of the armor and how each piece of armor represents Jesus and an aspect of the word of God and how we're to put that on so we could be ready for battle. And then we're supposed to start interceding for each other, praying for each other. That's how we enter into spiritual battle. That's how we wage warfare in the spiritual realm. And we've all been called to it. We are all soldiers for Christ. Not only that, intercession is something that Jesus modeled. The night that he was going to be betrayed, the night he's going to be arrested, he isn't worried about himself. No, he's praying for the disciples. He's praying for me and you. He's praying that we'll be in heaven with him and the Father. But if we want to be like the great men of the Bible, if we want to be like Jesus, we need to be men of prayer. I pray that this prayer of Daniel is going to lead us to do two things. Number one, it's going to lead us to pray. It's going to encourage us to pray. And number two, it's going to inform us how to pray. I'm going to close with this. It's interesting to me. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane three times prays that the Father would let this cup pass from him. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submits to the Father's will. And the Bible tells us that After that, angels came and started ministering to him. Angels came and started strengthening him. In our text this morning or this evening, Daniel seeks the Lord on behalf of God's people. Daniel submits to God's plan for redemption, God's plan for his people. And you know what happens? In the very next passage, the angel Gabriel comes to minister to Daniel, to give Daniel one of the greatest prophecies in all of Scripture. If we become greater men and women of prayer, I guarantee you we're going to start to see more divine help in our lives. We're going to see angels come and minister on our behalf. In Billy Graham's book, How I Pray, Billy Graham writes this, I heard about a young president of a company who instructed his secretary not to disturb him because he had an important appointment. The chairman of the board came in and said, I want to see Mr. Jones. The secretary answered, I'm terribly sorry. He cannot be disturbed. He has an important appointment. The chairman became very angry. He banged open the door and saw the president of his corporation on his knees in prayer. The chairman softly closed the door and asked the secretary, is this usual? She said, yes, he does this every morning. To which the chairman of the board responded, no wonder I come to him for advice. 
To those who pray, God promises wisdom and help. Right? Isn't that what James says? If any of you lack wisdom in the context of trials, in the context of confusion in the world, and how we're to be used by God in this time to ask, and it'll be given to us. Now, I can't promise you that God's going to give peace to the Middle East because we pray for it, or that he's going to give revival to our country because we pray for it. But what I can promise you, though, is if we follow Daniel's lead and seek God in these dark times, he'll give us a peace about the Middle East. He'll give us a peace that surpasses understanding about what's going on in our nation. And he'll allow us to be about his plan of redemption during these dark times. He'll use us to affect his kingdom during these times. If we're just come to him, get right with him, get his heart, see people, see the world the way that he does. It's going to come from his word. It's going to come from prayer. Amen. So God, we do thank you. Um, I thank you that you hear our prayer, that we could come to you and pray, Lord, and, and know that our petitions are heard. I thank you that as we come to you and as we wrestle with you like Jacob did, that you give us your heart, you give us your mind, you give us your wisdom for this world and how to glorify you, how to walk with you. I pray that we would grow in that, Lord, that we would honor you during this time, that we'd be used by you. You know, there's a whole lot of people that are confused, that are looking for answers right now, answers that we have. I pray you would give us a boldness. I pray that you would open the door for us to come and to share with those people the good news, that there is a God, that there is a way of redemption, that Jesus has paid the price and we could be right with him. We can't have a future and a hope like Israel could, but it's only through Jesus, Lord. I pray that we would just, that would be our heartbeat, that would exude from us, Lord, and that you would use us in a mighty way. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so maybe in the next 10, 15 minutes, let's break off into smaller groups and, uh, and, and do this that. Just pray for the, our nation, for Israel. Um, also, the, the one question, if you choose to discuss it, is you know, what stood out to you from the message? But I thank you guys for coming and look forward to being with you next week. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.